In April 2016, Kira Johnson went to the hospital to give birth to her second son. We walked into Cedar sinai Medical Center on April 12th of 2016 with a woman that just wasn't in good health. She was in exceptional health. This is Charles Johnson IV, Kira's husband. Shortly after their son's birth, Charles noticed blood in Kira's catheter. He notified the medical staff who ordered some tests. Blood work comes back. It's showing that it's abnormal and she's hemorrhaging. And they ordered a CT scan that was supposed to be performed stat. Keep in mind, this is around 4 o'clock. 5 o'clock comes, no CT scan. Her, con- her blood levels are continuing to drop. By this time, she's beginning to shiver uncontrollably. 6 o'clock, no CT scan. She's, becoming to be, she's beginning to become pale. She's in extreme pain. 7 o'clock comes, 8 o'clock comes, no CT scan. I'm begging, I'm pleading the staff to do something. And around 9 o'clock, as I continue to plead for my wife's life, the staff at Cedar sinai Medical Center tells me, sir, your wife just isn't a priority right now. Hours later, when she was finally taken back to surgery, Kira Johnson died on the operating table. Now, I'm here to tell you this. I'm not here to tell you what I think. I'm here to tell you what I know. There are people on this panel that are far more intelligent than I'll ever be that are going to talk to you about the statistics and how horrifying they are. What I'm here to tell you is this, is there's no statistic that can quantify what it's like to tell an 18-month-old that his mother's never coming home. There's no matrices that can quantify what it's like to explain to a son that will never know his mother just how amazing she was. My wife deserved better. Women all over this country deserve better. This is the story Mr. Johnson shared in congressional testimony in 2018. Since then, states across the country have said they're making maternal mortality a priority. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, the added risks of giving birth or being born Black in America. Black women are three and a half times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Even highly educated, wealthy African-Americans are at a greater risk than whites. Dr. Rochanda Mitchell is a maternal fetal medicine fellow at the University of Virginia Health System. And she says there's a lot more we can do to help combat the disparity. Dr. Mitchell, studies show African-American women are more likely than white women to die giving childbirth. Is it a great difference? Yes, the difference is quite substantial. It's almost three to four times greater. And sometimes, depending on the mother's age, it can be actually more. It can be about five times greater for a woman of color to die around childbirth. And when we say around childbirth, that means during labor, after labor, and up to one year after the birth of her child. Do we understand what's causing this? We have an idea of some comorbidities that are associated with increased risk of death that some of the statistics have shown. However, I think it's quite multifactorial, and we're still trying to figure out causes and, of course, solutions to those things. But death during childbirth is rare. Yes, Yes. Most of these deaths actually occur after the delivery, and we consider it still a death up to one year after birth. And what are the main reasons women are at risk for death following childbirth? Some of those health conditions are a lot of the chronic comorbidities, such as cardiovascular disease, blood clots, hemorrhage, stroke, even just morbid obesity is a high risk factor. Have you ever experienced losing a young patient from this? Yes, I have. And I will say this was not due to any of the comorbidities that I just discussed. This was another disorder that she had developed in pregnancy. And shortly afterwards, she did did pass away. Has the medical profession understood this for a long time? Have we known for years that this was a disparity? between young women of color giving birth and Caucasian women? No, 
actually, I'm, I don't think that it has been well-known or well-publicized with, within the last decade. I can see that it's solely been coming to the, the forefront. Um, a lot of my, you know, colleagues that trained me, you know, they said they started talking about it possibly around 2010, 2012. Um, and that's when they started to talk about maternal mortality, but then seeing the disparities, because disparities in healthcare has have really come to the forefront in the last couple of years. I saw a video of a man who testified before Congress. His name is Charles Johnson IV. He described his vibrant, beautiful, accomplished young wife who had what seemed to be a very normal childbirth, and then later she began hemorrhaging. And he was terrified for her and tried to get the medical staff to pay attention, and she eventually died. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, Charles Johnson's story is very heartbreaking. He was married to Kira Johnson, and they had already had a son that was 18 months, and she was pregnant again. She was in good health. She did not have any comorbidities associated with this pregnancy. She enjoyed it. She was highly educated, and... He and the family, they advocated for her after the delivery, stating that she didn't look or appear like her normal self for hours. And her needs were not really attended to. They made the complaint around 4 p.m. She didn't make it back to the OR until after 12 a.m. So there was about an eight-hour lag in her care. So it was a delay in care. By the time she was on the operating table with this emergency procedure, she died right there. Yes. And the she doctors did. were shocked at how advanced her condition had become. Yes. And I think part of what has come out of his advocacy during this time has been to listen to your patients. Oftentimes, this has been one of the things that has been of concern in, in healthcare are the needs of the women being addressed? or the complaints, or the reports of pain? Are they being taken seriously after the delivery? And there's been a lot of big push, too, on the political forefront to expand health care after delivery. Some women don't have health insurance after they deliver. So having access to health care may be limited for those reasons. So why is the disparity so much greater for African-American women? What is the speculation about why you're more at risk if you're an African-American woman than if you're a Caucasian woman? Well, I mean, it's multifactorial. And one of the biggest things that I can say is it really stems from a lot of other disparities that we have that are not just in pregnancy and health care. There are disparities related to access to care, access to education, prenatal care, healthy foods, safe neighborhoods to exercise. All of these things are related to having good outcomes when it comes to pregnancy outcomes. So amazing that just recently, even powerful, well-known and wealthy women like Serena Williams and Beyonce have publicly talked about pregnancy scares, childbirth scares, and difficulties that even they had with persuading the medical profession to give them more care. Yeah, I think this is a concern specifically for women of color is the health professionals hearing their voice or not being disregarded when they make a complaint or state that something is wrong. So people such as Serena Williams and Beyonce, Serena Williams had a history of having blood clots prior to pregnancy. And then after she had her surgery, she felt like she was having another blood clot in her lungs. And that's called a pulmonary embolus. And she alerted, you know, the staff of that. But it took the staff a while to understand that she actually knew what she was talking about, because this is something in her history that she all had previously had. Um, and I feel like there are disparities for women of color um, for their complaints to be validated by healthcare professionals. And this is not just something that celebrities have to deal with. This is something that 
if they have problems with people hearing their complaints or medical conditions, then imagine what the average everyday person feels. You know, these are very valid concerns. And now I myself am African-American and expecting um, right now. (laughs) So I can really understand what it feels like in that moment. I think it really hit home for me when someone asked me, they said, where are you going to deliver? And I was like, I'm going to deliver at my home institution at UVA. And they were like, oh, and some people don't deliver at their home institution when you're in medicine just because of privacy. And I felt like, well, I know UVA, number one, provides excellent care. (laughs) But two, one of the main reasons was they knew who I am. They know who I am when I when I walk through the door. My opinions, my thoughts, and everything will be taken seriously when it's time for me to deliver. How far along are you? Um, I'm currently 30 weeks, so we're getting closer. That's third? Uh, yes, third. the third trimester. So um, we have to have, you know, my husband and I, it's sad because this is well, it's a joyous time in our lives. We are. This is our first child, and we're excited. Congratulations! And, thank you. And we, um, when you have to have the conversation, that it's okay to advocate for me in the event, although we don't want it to happen. I am incapacitated and unable to advocate for myself. I have to coach my husband that it's okay to advocate on my behalf if I'm unable to do so. And you told him how? Yeah, we had to have that discussion to if things don't look right or respond, he can advocate and request things on my behalf. Um, it's, It's sad when you have to consider death. You know, I'm amazed to hear you say I had to have the talk with my husband. You said it as though it's a thing. Mm-hmm. I've heard about the talk when it comes to teaching children mm-hmm. how to interact with police officers, especially if they're stopped in a car. Mm-hmm. But the idea of a young, vibrant woman having to have the talk with her husband about how to advocate for her to keep her alive during childbirth is crazy. Yeah. I think, you know, the talk can stand for many things, but it's always the talk um, related to what a lot of people are afraid to address in the room, and that is race. Um, So I think the talk for him is I gave him permission to advocate on my behalf, to save my life in the case that it needed to be, it needed to be done. But he'd do it anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, he would want to do, he would definitely want to do, <laughs> do those things. But sometimes in a, in a world that we live in, we can be perceived specifically black men, because my husband is an African-American male, can be perceived as aggressive um, and may, you know, shy away from expressing himself in an, in that emotional state. That is one of the issues that we have to take into considerations when you are a person of color is that you may not have the privilege of expressing um, your raw emotion in that moment for being taken as aggressive. You know, I had three daughters and never once, I didn't have the talk with my husband. Mm -hmm. I mean, the going into delivery, knowing that you are five times more likely, regardless of your level of education, So it doesn't matter if you're well-educated, uneducated, or not. If you are of of African descent, you are five times more likely to die after or during childbirth. Has that ever scared you? Oh, definitely. And that's why we had to have the talk. Because if there is a chance, and I'm perfectly healthy, (laughs) I mean, but if there is a chance that something was to happen I wanted my husband to know what to do what my wishes were and how I expected him to conduct himself in that moment during that time so not only am I preparing for a new baby I also have to prepare my husband for what can happen or what may happen during that time because I won't be the physician at that time I'll be a patient 
and, and to take it one step further, you know, we don't know the gender of our baby, which we are going to be surprised on the day of delivery, which we're completely excited about. But if if it's a boy, I have to worry about having that talk again as that little boy grows up. So to have to think that if I have a son, he will be cute when he's born, but when he grows up and becomes a man, <laughs> he may be considered a threat. So true. If you could wave your wand as an expert in this field, but also as a woman who feels this so acutely herself, and when recommendations come back on how we might help young laboring mothers, what's one thing you would say, please do this? <sighs> I think because I, I right now I'm in that <laughs> moment of being on both sides, the patient and the physician, I would, could give advice to both. And one, for the patient, as the patient, as an African-American woman, I would say, take care of yourself. Know your health. Know your risk factors. Receive adequate prenatal care so that interventions and things can be in place for you when that moment arrives as a physician, would be really get to know your patients. Develop a relationship with your patients, regardless of, of differences, whether it's socioeconomic status, racial, ethnic, a religious difference. Get to know somebody up close. And, and you can't have a wonderful relationship with all of your patients and maybe you don't want to but actually get to know who your patients are up close. Dr. Rochanda Mitchell, thank you for sharing your insights with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Dr. Rochanda Mitchell is a maternal fetal medicine fellow at the University of Virginia Health System. Writer Bellamy Schaffner was well aware of the frightening statistics when she gave birth to her sons. Schaffner is founder and editor of Hold the Line magazine about social justice motherhood. Bellamy, the first issue of Hold the Line, your online social justice motherhood magazine, featured an essay by a midwife who'd founded a person of color doula collective for Black women during and after pregnancy. Why was it so important for you to have that essay in your very first issue? That first issue of Hold the Line, or HTL as we like to call it, was an introduction to the truth that Black parents and parents of color are automatically at a disadvantage. And so we wanted to have essays that highlight sort of more immediate problems that before we even get into parenthood, there are already issues. What was your own birth experience like? Uh, both of my birth experiences were pretty unique because I suffered from hyperemesis gravidarum during pregnancy. So I was very sick throughout my entire pregnancy, and um, or both of them. And what I realized was that I had a very hard time getting doctors to hear my concerns and getting them to treat the the issues that I w was having. Give me an example of that. So um, I would I was throwing up probably fifty to a hundred times a day, depending on the day, depending on which pregnancy it was. And um, I would go in to the hospital and I would get IVs occasionally, maybe every few weeks because I couldn't hold food down, but I couldn't get my doctors to actually diagnose me with the disease that I had. Did you know what you had? I knew exactly what I had. How did I, you know? I had no doubt because I was so incredibly sick. Um, I'd lost 10% of my body weight. I, I could not eat. There were times when I couldn't drink water. There was a three-day period during my first pregnancy where I couldn't hold any food down at all. It sounds like you could have been at great risk for losing your child. Absolutely. And I'd never, and you know, when you're sick like that, the sicker you are, the harder it is for you to make your own good choices. And so it would have been great to have a doula or have an advocate or any sort of medical professional that was hearing my concerns and actually taking it seriously. What was the actual birth experience like? And did you have a premature baby? 
I am fortunate that neither of my children were premature, but my second birth, I had to choose to have a C-section, which I felt was very risky, but I, that was my only option. I was told that was my only option to, to end the suffering of the pregnancy. There's a renewed look now at just what the risk factors are for women of color when it comes to their own lives and health during pregnancy and, and to making sure their babies thrive. The statistics are terrible. Women of color are three to four times more likely to die as a complication of pregnancy than white women. Women of color are two times as likely as white women to lose their babies in the first year. Yeah, absolutely. Those statistics are shocking, and I think I'm more aware of them now than I was originally when I had my kids. My kids are five and eight, and so that information is coming out more and more as time goes on. And I am grateful that I did not become one of those statistics. And at the same time, when I think about maybe having a third child, I'm hesitant to do so because there's just no guarantee I'll be around for the first two. What do you feel that you understand better now when it comes to maternity issues for women of color? I think that when I was pregnant, I wanted to believe that my healthcare providers had my best interest at heart. Um, And now I just feel affirmed in the fact that that may not have been true. Why now do you think that? Mm, I think the sort of the gift of hindsight and realizing that I was in a in a really scary, dangerous situation, and I was not getting the health care, the medication, um, hospitalizations, things like that, that I should have had. And I've seen lots of posts and stories from white moms who were given home health care. They were put into the hospital, admitted with the same disease, and I was not given that care, not even close, not even given the opportunity. So what was the moment where you actually created or decided to create the Social Justice Motherhood magazine, which is such a good phrase. I've never thought about social justice motherhood, but of course. Right. So parenting is an act of social justice. You, We, as parents, we have the power to help our kids see the world in a better light and to help them be welcoming and inclusive and make big differences and changes in the world. And so... I started Hold the Line shortly after it became national news that the rise of white supremacy had begun. And it became really important to me to use my voice and my writing to share stories that would help other parents work against this awful uprising. Well, the rise of white supremacy you're talking about started for you in in a very personal way by the fact that you live in Charlottesville, where the alt-right in 2017 came with tiki torches and guns. Yes, and I had to hide my children in the house, and I was worried, and obviously, and I mean, I kept my kids inside in the house for days after those marches happened because I just didn't know how to protect them any better than that. There are many ways to be an activist, and there are many ways to stand up against hate, and for me, the best way to do that was was through starting this magazine and starting these conversations with other parents so that we can all try to raise kids who are who will, will not be marching with the alt-right. Where does the title Hold the Line come from? Hold the Line actually comes from an interview that I did about the rallies in Charlottesville in August t- 2017. I interviewed a woman who repeatedly used the phrase hold the line in regards to the way that the counter-protesters were standing up against the, the protesters and the alt-right. And I know that it's a common phrase, but there was something so strong about it to me because when I think about parenthood, I think that that's what we do. We hold the line. We'd stand in front of and against anybody who is attacking our children or who is in direct threat to our children. And so it's really important to me to use that strong language because parenthood is often about doing really strong things to protect our children. So in addition to the essay on doulas, what else was in that first issue? That first issue also included um, a story about my personal childhood, where I talked about being a Black kid growing up in the suburbs and and how that colored my, my relationship with race today. So I grew up around a lot of white kids, and then I would go to school, and our, our schools were relatively integrated. And so 
I would see a lot of Black kids at school who also who knew that I who knew that I lived in the suburb, and they'd call me white to tease me, and they didn't really let me in. And so I kind of was always in the in the in both worlds. I was kind of straddling between living around the white kids, but wanting to have more black friends when I got to school. It's hard to straddle two worlds. Mm-hmm. It is. And in and in the magazine, I think my point was to show that a lot of white parents can step away from race and they can take a break and they have the luxury to not think about it. But as a Black parent, it has been a part of my life from the very beginning, and it it informs the decisions I make for my kids now and will forever be an important part of my life in the future. And so that essay really highlights the confusion and the difficulty of constantly having to be aware of your race, even when you, you know, you just want to find friends and you just want to you just want to be a normal kid and then the burden of it as you are as you become a parent and have to make those same choices for your for your child and figure out what um figure out what's best for them as kids of color this magazine is near and dear to your heart absolutely oh i've put hundreds and hundreds of hours into it and i i write i design I do the marketing, and it really is a project of passion and protection. And I, I think of it as the one of the best ways I can help my sons learn to navigate this um, this often unjust world. I've talked to so many women, African-American women, worried about how to keep their sons safe. That doesn't surprise you. No, not at all. I think about it every day. I worry about my sons every day. And as the my 8-year-old gets older, I wonder, you know, how soon will it be that he automatically becomes a threat? How soon will it be that someone sees him and sees a, a grown man and not a little boy and and treats him as such? And as a as a black person and as a black mother, you just never get a you never get to let your guard down. You never have a moment of peace. Hold the Line seems like an exciting way to contribute to the cause and be around a collective of women and voices talking about social justice. It is. It's a great way to find solidarity in what's otherwise a very lonely feeling. And knowing that there are other people out there who are trying to make a difference who are trying to educate themselves and who are trying to educate their kids to be better people in this world, knowing that is very valuable. Bellamy Schaffner is a writer and founder and editor of Hold the Line magazine. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. Most people have a long to-do list when preparing for a baby. Buy a car seat, pick a name, choose a crib. Some new parents are adding another item to their list. Hire a doula. Doulas are trained to provide support before, during, and after birth. And in some especially wealthy communities, doulas are common these days. But they're expensive and rarely covered by insurance. That means the new parents who are most in need of a doula's extra support are the ones who usually can't get it. Enter Kristen Farmer. Farmer is a doula in Cleveland, Ohio, and founder of an organization called Birthing Beautiful Communities. Birthing Beautiful Communities not only helps train doulas, they also provide doula services free of charge for women in high-risk areas. Kristen, what led you to create Birthing Beautiful Communities of Cleveland? This was to help women through childbirth. Were you a doula? I was. I was a birth doula. My lifelong dream had to become an actual midwife to deliver babies. And so that didn't happen. My goal really was to support primarily African-American women within my own neighborhood who were at high risk for infant mortality, as I did know about the Black infant mortality rate in our city and, and county at the time. 
And so I dedicated myself to providing volunteer services as a birth doula to women in my neighborhood. Is the infant mortality in your region higher than it is elsewhere? It is. The national rate for infant death is six deaths per 1,000 babies. Some neighborhoods within my region have rates of 33 deaths per 1,000 babies. Our state is one of the worst states for infant death, Black infant death particularly. That's horrifying. How much more likely is an African-American woman to lose her infant than a white woman? More than three times the rate of white infant death. Black babies die, particularly in our region, at that rate. And that is pretty sound across the country. You know, we talk so cryptic about what the root is around infant mortality, and it's, it's more of a social issue than it is a clinical issue. The driver of infant mortality is prematurity, but the question really is, why is it that African-American women are unable to make it full term in their pregnancies? You know, a master degree African-American woman is still more likely to lose her baby than a white woman without a high school diploma speaks to a more societal issue around the disparities between African-Americans and white Americans. What do you mean social than clinical? More social than clinical. What do you think is happening? So the social aspects are the factors that influence or contribute to health outcomes. So that can be housing, that can be transportation, that can be educational factors, that can be the neighborhood You know, what is the environment like when you step outside of your home? How likely are you to receive support or receive care within your neighborhoods and in your communities? And so those things translate to our our health, the quality of life that has everything to do with how well our outcomes are or how well they're not. You know, there have been many studies uh, done around zip codes and how a zip code predicts uh, your life expectancy. And so it really boils down to what do people have access to? What are their levels of stress like? As stress is um, a dire condition for the body to be under constantly, um, which that also contributes to what we see in prematurity, particularly for African-American women. Have you seen firsthand The stresses that women are experiencing that might lead to low birth weight and premature babies and infant death. Absolutely. Um, Our work centers around that. It's very important for African-Americans to have social capital and social cohesion. And what I mean by that really is, you know, sort of this collectivism feel and aspect. And that's something that our organization brings in helping to relieve their stress. It goes beyond poverty. I know that, you know, there's sort of this myth that this is a poor Blacks problem, but that's not true, you know, considering the fact that I just gave around an educated African-American woman. Years, we're talking centuries of disinvestment, centuries of, you know, racism, centuries of systemic racism. So all of these things end up being stressful or our stressors. All Black women, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of education level, are at the same level of risk for infant death. And and so that doesn't change by income or status. Uh, We have to make it so that we support women um, entirely through the pregnancy and even before and then afterwards. Help me understand what it feels like to a woman, regardless of her income, regardless of her education, to feel that stress through years of systemic racism. In other words, racism that's sort of built into how the goods get distributed and how people treat each other. Yeah, and then the representation within systems, too. What do you mean, Um, the representation? The representation within systems. So, you know, here in my region, for example, uh, countywide, 
African-Americans make up 29 percent of the population, yet um, more than 70 percent of the county jail's population is African-American. That is a huge disparity when you look at the population versus who are the inmates. Mass incarceration is a systemic issue that disproportionately affects African-American males. These things have trickle-down effects because those are the fathers of those babies and those are the brothers of the mothers and those are the fathers of the mothers. These things uh, occur within our community and have continued to occur so much so that we see that our babies are dying from this. I mean, in the education system, you know, when you look at the the graduation rates, and particularly one of our neighborhoods um, has a functioning illiteracy rate of 95%, and that neighborhood is also 99% African-American. When you have adults who can't read and write above a fourth grade level, those adults were once children in an education system. Then you think about all the stressors that come from not being able to read and write above a fourth grade level, where are you going to go to get sufficient employment to care for your family? There's so many facets to how systemic racism has impacted people from a very high macro level down to a neighborhood level. That's essentially what our communities are facing. Now, you know, the other factor to this and how this ends up impacting African-American women who are middle class or upper middle class is that African-Americans have a 228-year wealth gap. Even when there is one African-American woman in her family who goes to college, graduates, gets a good paying job and so forth, she is still not solely just responsible for herself. Um, She still has family. She still has friends who don't have the same social economic status. And so, you know, the weight of having to support others around you um, when you are in need of support yourself, it's all taxing to the body. Um, And then so over time, there's an effect called weathering, where literally the amount of stress tears on the body, the wear and tear on the body over time. Do you relate to that at all? Yes. uh, All African-American women relate to that in one way or another. And I know that because we we did a study (laughs) around that. Um, Initially, we had women do a self-reporting on stress when they came in to receive services from us. We used the National Perceived Stress Scale. And the women were reporting very low levels of stress, But then they would have revealed to us that they were going through some very stressful situations, such as, you know, not having somewhere to live, you know, couch surfing, you know, experiencing some domestic violence, you know, situations. And, you know, all of these things that we would consider to be stressful, the women were reporting that they were not under stress. And so I went to visit um, one of the local psychologists here and said, well, hey, is it possible that African-American women are normalizing this stress? Is there a way that we are internalizing this stress and that it's just everyday life for us and so we don't define it as stress? What ended up happening was that we actually did a a cortisol study, which cortisol is the stress hormone, and we did hair samples to look at cortisol levels over a three-month period. And so... What our theory was that African-American women were more stressed than a white woman within the same gestational period of time, it turned out that that effect was true. And so then that also relates back to trauma and adverse childhood experiences. The African-American community in particular um, has a lot of generational trauma that our entire experience in America has been of a traumatic nature when we first came here to the things that we have experienced socially uh, within this country, things that we've experienced medically within this country. And so how do you undo all of the trauma that has been passed generationally? How do you find young African-American women are perceiving the hospital 
So when they need to sign up for and get the care and then get the birthing experience, is that frightening? I personally, when I had my child, I didn't experience an adverse sort of experience within the hospital, but there are so many women who do. We work to support that mother by accompanying her to the appointments. Um, If she feels that she has a provider who is not attentive or responsive to her needs, then we assist with finding a different provider who can assist her better, who listens to her. For our organization, next year we'll be actually breaking ground on a birthing center, which we don't have a birthing center at all in the state of Ohio, and the nearest one is 130 miles away from us. So I think that we have to be more progressive in our our thinking of not what makes us comfortable, but what makes a mother comfortable in her right to give birth. Congratulations. That sounds fantastic that you're about to create the first for a wide region birthing center. Yes, we are, uh, because it's needed for for many reasons. We have a severe shortage of midwives in our country, even more severe shortage of Black midwives in our country. You know, one of the things that we never talk about when when we talk about maternal and infant mortality, um, the United States compared to other developed countries is the majority of births in other developed countries are attended by midwives versus here in the United States, over 95% of the births are attended by OBGYNs. There is a different model of care that midwives give um, than OBGYNs who really work more with high-risk patients, though they can work with all levels of risk. But midwives only work with low-risk patients. And so the model of care, which is very woman-centered and midwifery, uh, is something that we should promote and do more of and have more of. So the birthing center stands to also be an educational uh, center to help increase the number of midwives that we have in our region. You created your nonprofit called Birthing Beautiful Communities of Cleveland in 2015 after you found not enough doula training specifically geared for Black women serving your community. Tell me about Birthing Beautiful Communities. What do you have now, and what sort of training do you do? Yes, so um, I had a a huge concern that I didn't know of any Black doulas. In fact, I I thought I was the only Black doula in my city, and I thought, you know, I'm like, man, how is that even possible when Black babies are dying at the rate that they're that they're dying at? You know, where are the Black birth workers? So I had um, put a PSA out on Facebook asking for people to tag uh, African-American doulas because I wanted to create a collective that could specifically address our issues because this needed to be addressed by Black women. And we trained 10 women. Uh, We were to see 25 women within a year. We saw 50 women, so we spoke to the demand And so today we have grown. Um, We are now in two cities. We are in the city of Cleveland and we are in the city of Akron. But then we also address housing, maternal mental health, education, workforce development, uh, legal issues, and also providing support to those mothers who want to take a step in the direction of entrepreneurship. We, we spend about 80 weeks with the parents. So we are there from very early pregnancy. We actually attend the labor and delivery and we're with the mom until the baby is a year old. And so over the last four years, we've seen over 600 families. We have a, a infant survival rate of 99.2%. Our prematurity rate is lower than the city, the county, the state, and the national rates for African-American women, and our breastfeeding rates are higher. So our model works for African-American women. And how do these women afford you? Our services are free of of charge. Uh, We are a nonprofit organization. Um, We are moving into the direction of insurance companies uh, doing reimbursement, Medicaid uh, specifically. 
uh, doing reimbursement, we are supported by our State Department of Medicaid and we are supported by other private funders. We make it affordable by being free for <laughs> families. <laughs> Good. But we will, you know, move into the direction to where we will start to really offer fee for, for services because there are a lot of African-American women who can afford our services, right? It's, this is, again, you know, and we get a lot of uh, African-American women from all social economic statuses. So it's, it's just, it's definitely not about poverty. It's about the need for the support to help make an informed decision on the health and well-being of yourself and your baby. You've said it wasn't the clinical experience so much as all of these other factors that lead to stress and weathering on African-American women. What about the clinical part of this? What could nurses and doctors do to be more supportive and have better outcomes for laboring Black women and their infants? Uh, well, there are some uh programs that are available within the clinical setting. Um, there's one that is national called Center in Pregnancy. Also, having that relationship with, yes, the patient, but also that support person as well. And we are working on having more of a sound relationship with clinicians so that the clinician understands what the patient is experiencing from a social aspect. She may come in and, and have high blood pressure because of, you know, the stressors that, you know, have occurred before. I have a story about that, in fact. I had a client who was having her fourth child. She was delivering at 38 weeks. She called me and she said, hey, I'm in the hospital um, I think I'm about to have the baby, but I can also hear that she was a bit frantic beyond the labor. She was like, I, I can't really talk about it right now. Come to the hospital and we'll talk. And so I get to the hospital and they have her hooked up on monitors and her blood pressure is like sky high. And they're saying to her, we have to deliver this baby. Now we have to induce you because your blood pressure is high. And her mother tells me, well, yeah, my grandson was shot, and he's downstairs in the emergency room getting surgery. So this mother, this is her son. She's giving birth while her oldest child is in surgery in the same hospital because he had just been shot. Of course, her blood pressure is high. Right. She's giving birth to one child while she's worried about the life of her other child. And so the social factors, which violence is another one of those social factors uh, that plague our communities and how that then rolls over into birth outcomes. I mean, there's no way for me to know precisely if that incident with her son had not occurred, had she went into labor two weeks before she was um, supposed to. But from my experience, I can say that that had a lot to do with it. That's um, just beyond belief. Do you think the community recognizes that you're making this difference? I do think that the community recognizes that Birth and Beautiful Communities is making a difference um, because it drives me as the leader of the organization to really, really focus on what are the solutions, you know, and how do we simultaneously address the inequities that have ultimately led to these disparities that we see in birth outcomes coupled with providing the service that people need now, the direct service, the today service. Infant death is not going to wait for racism to leave this country. We have to be able to address both at the same time. And so my work is really centered on making those solutions happen, creating those solutions and executing those solutions so that we see 
real change in real time and not waiting 10 years from now for us to say, oh, we spent $100 million on this issue and nothing has changed. The Virginia legislature in the last session commissioned a study of infant and mother mortality for African-Americans and that disparity between African-Americans and Caucasian women. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much uh, the same, you know, across all states, because all states have some element of racial disparities, right? It's one thing to look at the infant and, and maternal mortality rates, but then you also have to include those other rates. You, know, you have to look at the unemployment rates, the education and the graduation rates, you have to look at the incarceration rates for you to be able to paint a full picture. What trends are you seeing with those other rates? And how do those rates influence the rates of the infant deaths? We have to, you know, get out of our sort of siloed thinking around what is happening with our babies. Well, our our society is what is happening to our babies. Kristen Farmer, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this on With Good Reason. Thank you. Kristen Farmer is founding president and chief executive officer of Birthing Beautiful Communities. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>